Welcome, and thank you for coming. Real estate is going through a fundamental shift from a fixed cost per seat commodity to an experiential differentiated Real estate is going through a fundamental shift from a must-have. It's a mouthful. We'll clean it up, but I think we're great, and I think we're preparing for the roadshow right now. Sorry. The universe had to release it. Just let the air out. WeWork is garnering questions about its business model. There are all kinds of things that just pop out as red flags in this. It feels like it's valued as a tech company, but this is a real estate company. The founder wanted total, complete control for life. The company went from a $47 billion valuation to near bankruptcy in just six weeks. The future of the company very uncertain at this point. If you tell a 30-something male that he's Jesus Christ, he's inclined to believe you. All right, welcome everybody and welcome to another episode of Sand Hill Road. I'm super excited to have today with me the author of my new favorite book, Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Fall of WeWork. So I'm really excited to have with me today Reeves Weedman, who's the author of this great book that I can really recommend everyone to buy physically. It's a real page turner and I, I read it from cover to cover. So Reeves, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me and thank you for that introduction. I'm, I'm so glad you enjoyed the book and, and eager to talk more about it. Let's jump right in with the person at the center of, of it all. You're a real estate company wrapped in this sort of, in, in this tech uh, sheen. So definitely not a real estate company. We are a community of creators. We create environment for entrepreneurs and freelancers. We leverage technology to connect people. So I personally met Adam back in, I think it was 2017, TechCrunch Disrupt New York. I remember him, you know, not being quite specific about how he would bring everything to fruition. When you have a 40% business, when you have a margin, you can actually choose when to be profitable. Right. We like to hover around the EBITDA a break even and then we can choose when we want to move where we want to move but i could remember walking away thinking that he was this sort of cult-like figure and that he had this ability to inspire people with his visionary words and some would call it reality dilution field hello new york hello we work hello global citizens of this earth you know what a global citizen of this earth is? It's a member of the we generation. And a member of the we generation does not discriminate between age, race, gender. You met him, I think, a couple of times while writing the book. Maybe talk about your experience with him personally. Sure. Um, well, I actually met Adam once. Uh, I met him in the spring of, of 2019. Uh, we met at his office in WeWork headquarters in Manhattan. And this was when WeWork was flying high. They were valued at $47 billion. They had not yet publicly announced that they were going to attempt an IPO. That would happen a few weeks after I met Adam. So in hindsight, Everything was in the works, obviously, when I met him. He exuded incredible confidence, which is which is what you hear from everyone who meets him. And, and it sounds like kind of what you you experienced as well. And he's just the kind of person who who takes over over a room. Very charismatic from the moment I saw him. And he's very tall. And so he has a like very commanding presence. Um, and he's also really, really, he's really friendly. You you both want to be with him, and then and then I think you know it can can kind of tell the ways in which he's he's sort of directing the conversation wherever he wants it to go, and that's a real skill, and 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 he has that, and that that served him well in conversations with 
reporters, with investors, with partners, with with employees, with all kinds of people and over, over the years as he built this company. Your interaction with him at that meeting, he knew that you were sort of more on the fences with respect to your outlook for the company and that he was really trying to bring you around. I think that's something that sort of played out in a number of other relationships that he had, that he was really good at bringing people to his side and feeling that they were part of a bigger mission. Talk a little bit about the nuances of this interaction. Yeah, you know, Adam's the kind of person who, who you ask him a pointed question and he nods his head and, and tells you it's a great question and then says something else and doesn't quite answer it. And it, there's a way in which all of us do that. You know, we, none of us want to, to answer the, the hard questions directly. And, and it is in some ways a real skill to sort of take a hard question and, and kind of divert it back towards sort of what, what your narrative is. If you're asking him, you know, it is a bit unusual, Adam, that, that you are an investor in some of the properties that, that we work leases, for instance. Oh, you know, we were just trying to prove our model kind of early in the days of, of WeWork. There's, there's sort of nothing to see here. And he can kind of go off and, and sort of make his talking points. And, and he's very good at that. You could take that in a certain way and say, you know, oh, he's just pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. But but I think, you know, this is a real skill for, for any kind of person, no matter what it is you're selling. You're on a very founder-friendly podcast here where we uh -huh. talk, talk a lot about, you know, building the first version of the product and, and obviously part of you know making it over the the valley of death of every startup is sort of to fake it till you make it but there's slippery slope in terms of of how much confidence you portray and how much humility you have let's talk about the title of the book in the in the very beginning which is billion dollar loser and i think it's a controversial title because if you look at the numbers adam newman did quite well financially he He sold a bunch of secondaries in one of the crossover rounds. And also his early stage investors, top tier Silicon Valley firm benchmark, they took out quite a substantial amount in, in secondaries. So on the face of it, he did deliver for both himself and his early stage investors past the, the hot potato, in a sense, to the growth stage investors, which piled on. And it's often referred to as the, the MPO, the Masa private offering instead of the IPO. He went through the, the MPO and, and benchmark as well. Talk to us a little bit about how we should understand the term loser in the context of your book. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's intentionally a bit inflammatory of a, of a title. And there were sort of two two meanings to it. Both are, are now a, a, a little bit off. One, this was a company that lost billions of dollars. I mean, that 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 is one thing about WeWork and a handful of other companies, not many over the past decade that, that got these huge infusions of cash, never before seen amounts of, of venture capital, not the, the seed rounds and the series A, B, C rounds, but the series F round, often coming from SoftBank, whether it was to, to WeWork, to Uber, to some of the other companies that were just kind of burning cash. So, so that was one part of it. And then the other part was obviously at the time when, when Adam was pushed out of the company, And, and the IPO collapsed. His total exit, exit package was was north of a billion dollars, and and he had done that despite the fact that, by a pretty objective metric, the thing he had been building the company toward had failed, and that thing that he was building no longer seemed possible. And and you're right, he came out great. Other investors, early investors, got a great return. They they didn't get the return that they perhaps hoped for, but those weren't the people that got burned. I think. When you think about some of the other people that got burned, the employees, many of whom lost their jobs, thousands of whom lost their jobs, almost all of whom did, did not get the, the financial windfall that Adam got and, and that Adam was promising them and, and, and promising them very publicly in events was coming very, very, very soon. 
And so, you know, that, that those were kind of the two meetings. Of course, of course, that has now shifted given that um, Adam's settlement with SoftBank was was more or less cut in half. So, so the uh, paperback version of the book will will be the half billion dollar loser, I I, I suppose. Yeah, one thing I, I found extremely interesting about about your personal process in getting into the story. I remember back in 2019, you wrote this New York Magazine article, and, and there was this quote where you said, valuation and size today are much more based on our energy and spirituality than on multiples of revenue. And that's that's a quote from Adam. And I actually found a tweet of myself where I quoted this article, we work blurring the lines between dilution and dilution since 2010, because I, I was already quite bearish on it at that point. Mm. Talk to us a little bit about about the personal writing process. It, it seems from me from the outside that you were dragged in more by coincidence as a journalist, and then it got so interesting that you you felt there was so much material you had to turn it into a book, and you talked to I think more than 250 people who had been involved with with the company. Talk to us about this process. Sure. Yeah. Um. And and thank you. Yeah. As 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 you you allude to this this started with a magazine article. This started with in early 2019. I'm a writer at New York Magazine, and and we decided we want to do a feature story on WeWork. Frankly, because we had an office in Soho in in New York um, at the time, and uh, suddenly we were surrounded by half a dozen WeWorks. We saw this as a as a New York real estate story, as a story of this company that that was clearly taking off and and in in many ways taking over the the sort of commercial office space in in New York City. And and we knew some of the weirdness kind of around the company. We knew Adam was a bit of a quirky guy. We knew about the summer camp sort of bacchanal party uh, every year because of these company events. I mean, it is, it is legitimately the craziest work experience you'll ever have in your life. I think at four o'clock, they start serving alcohol. And when I say they're serving alcohol, they are serving alcohol. Like every 50 yards, there's like a bar set up and it's unlimited. Like if you wanted to drink to, for the end of time, you could have drank till the end of time. At all these events during the day you listen to presentations speeches there was always like some famous people there and then you know at night you do the we work thing which is kind of just party so we knew this was not just your typical company but but we did not see this as clearly this is a company that's going to be collapsing i think in in fact the opposite we we saw it as a company that was on the rise and and trying to understand it and so you know when when i published that story in in june of 2019 the company was sort of preparing its ipo and you know people were it was hard to get people to talk about the company and and that's the case uh, with with my job and no matter what company i'm writing about you know even even people who have critical things to say are are often reticent to to do so for a variety of reasons. In the case of WeWork, some people were scared, which is normal human response. You don't like talking about your employer for for one reason or another, and or your former employer even. And and WeWork had shown in the past that they were willing to crack down on employees who who talked to reporters and and leaked to to reporters. They had they had in fact sued one employee at, at one point for doing so. Um, and there were also just employees who. You know, would would tell me, yeah, you know, uh, Adam's a little strange, and and there's kind of weird stuff that's been going on, but 
I, I hope I get a payout soon. And so I don't want you to put any of this in, in an article. And, and, you know, there's, there is that impulse from, from employees of, of hoping that things work out, even if, even if kind of some of the things that they, they see don't quite sit right with them. So, so that article, I, you know, I, I think was sort of appropriately critical and in, in questioning of the company as it headed toward its, its IPO. And then I think as end of the summer emerged and the company's attempt at an IPO came and, and very spectacularly collapsed, I think two things happened for me. One, it felt like the end of a story. And, and obviously, WeWork is still a company and will still exist. And we can we can talk about sort of where the company is today. But the end of the Adam Newman era had had come. And, and to a certain extent, I felt like the end of a certain of a, of a startup era had come. I, I, I have maybe different thoughts about, about how much this era has has ended or, or, or not at this point. But I think we saw I saw that sort of story kind of encapsulated with with Adam's departure and, and the collapse of the IPO. And then and then people were just much more willing to talk. People were much more willing to share what had happened now that things had really gone south. So, so it just felt like an opportunity to kind of tell a, a, a bigger story than what had appeared in the magazine. That's super interesting because if I compare it to the process uh, for Bad Blood and the Theranos story, I mean, Theranos was always super secretive about what they were doing and, and their internal mm -hmm. operations. And with WeWork, it was com the complete opposite. Like it was always this, this sharing, this we, I mean, the, the name itself. I mean, the product, everybody could see that this is not a tech company, that this is a real estate company masquerading as a tech company, trying to get these SaaS multiples and in their case, space as a service, as they termed it in, in the S1, an attempt to sort of get on, on these frothy tech valuations without actually having having any any tech angle. Real estate usually is a very dependable, predictable business. It doesn't grow that much, but it's it's steady. You can kind of map out these returns. But WeWork was growing so fast that it was being valued by investors as an ultra-fast growth, low-overhead technology company. It wasn't Adam's first company. In fact, it was, I think, by all accounts, it was his third company, his first company was this baby clothing company. He had this idea called crawlers, which was for babies so they could have padded knees. You know, babies have been doing fine for millions of years without padded knees. Our tagline was just because they don't tell you doesn't mean they don't hurt. <laughs> and then he had Green Desk. I think of it as, as sort of the, the first MVP of WeWork that, that he managed to sell. And that was really this New York real estate story. And, and as you said, New York real estate is just not real estate. It's really this highly priced asset where if you run this arbitrage of long-term leases and short-term office spaces, you can get great multiples. And we've seen a number of people excelling in that, but it's a commercial real estate play. It's not a software play. Talk to us a little bit about this basic evolution, the basic business model, what were they offering? Yeah, I mean, the offering was pretty simple. Nicely designed office space with free coffee and flexible lease terms. That was essentially the core of, of what we were sold. Beyond that, what they were telling people that they were selling, and that was both to investors and then to just the people who rented the space, was was a sense of community and that what you're getting is, you know, a place where your dog uh, can come to the office, as you can see my my dog wandering the couch behind me. So this was somewhat novel, that your office should be fun, that it should be a place where you should meet people. And the company did put effort into this. It, it was not just a, a sort of kind of a buzzword that they threw on it. They did, especially early on, really try to get companies to meet each other. A lot of the early people were just 
uh, solo entrepreneurs or, or two or three person design companies or, or whatever it might be. And so there was a real sense of community. And, and I think that was really strong for people. That became a lot harder to, to both sell and to kind of manufacture as the company grew. And, and that's what you had to do. The, you know, community wasn't going to grow naturally in a, in a global office network with hundreds of thousands of people. Like it, community, you know, has there, there has to be work put behind it. And, and I think at, at that scale, it was difficult to to pull off. And, and you know, they aspired to kind of become this physical social network, as, as they put it. This is WeWork, the world's first physical social network. Our mission is to empower the world through collaboration. But it was difficult to kind of translate this sort of what works in in a social network, and and obviously we know all the, all of the problems with digital social networks. It was difficult to actually translate that in, into the physical world, it, it, in a in a way that could actually impact everyone who was working at WeWork. Yeah, there are two angles I want to double click on this tech angle that they were always trying to sell. And you outlined it really well in the book that they were trying to build this social network, basically this LinkedIn with physical space. They created this sort of Facebook type platform for members where you could get people connected through technology. And in addition, I think they had some initiatives like putting sensors under the under the desks and sort of monitor where people would spend most of their time sort of creating these heat maps and data analytics on, you know, how people behave within the office. They had acquired a bunch of interesting technologies and were stitching together what might have been by far the most comprehensive tool for how people work. We use Beacon technology, but a lot of other aspects, we're using our video cameras to actually see where interactions are happening. And our entire process is built to make our members more successful. But all of these were like really like marginal benefits that that didn't really move the needle without a clear product vision and, and roadmap. Yeah, you know, they, they, yeah, there were there were kind of two sides of it. There were kind of the physical social network, you know, trying to connect all of these offices and, and to build their sort of proprietary LinkedIn, kind of the way they thought about it. And and they tried various attempts at that. Uh, of course, whatever you think of LinkedIn, it's pretty good at what it is. It's it's a professional social network, and so there wasn't a clear utility to having sort of one that existed only within in the WeWork universe. And then the other part was all these other ways in which they tried to make the, the sort of construction and operation of a building more tech forward. You know, they had some successes on this front. They, they did actually make the construction process more efficient and streamlined. They were doing all of this research. All of it's fine and well, you know, it's fine and well to like better learn how people use a conference room. But that isn't a, a 20 times revenue multiplier. You know, that's a that's a, a minor efficiency. And and so I think there was this this sort of feeling and hope that that one of these pieces of technology would kind of would actually elevate the company to that level. But but there was just never quite able to sort of match what what was promised. And it always felt like the tech angle was added on top of the core offering. And that the reason why they they passed through as a tech play was because a lot of their tenants were actually tech startups and that gave the impression of them being part of the ecosystem. I remember in 2016, I went to so many meetups in the WeWork offices in San Francisco and it was just really this kombucha on taps kind of feeling. It says, do what you love. Our friends who were doing their tech startups, they all worked in WeWorks. Um, we didn't even consider any other co-working space. The thinking was, if you have a tech startup and you want it to be successful, you start it at a WeWork. I love co-working spaces so much. So uh, let's start over here at the snacks area. And, and everybody felt like they were in a tech space, but 
it was really just a tech space and the tech happened somewhere else and it was really decoupled from from the physical location to double click a bit on the community aspect i mean adam he grew up in a kibbutz in the mm -hmm. south of israel and i really i take him seriously when he when he was saying that he was trying to build a community and he was a great public speaker and local community builder i think that was really one of his core talents you're a creator and you're a creator and i know you're a creator and the reason we are all creators is because we do something that's greater than ourselves. But community really isn't scalable in, in many ways. And I, I think part of it, of the failure of WeWork is based on this false premise that this was scalable. What's your take on the community and cult aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, that was a huge part of what the company was was doing and what it sold. I think a huge part of what made it so appealing. And there's a way in which, you know, early on when you're a small company, like you, you want to foster that. You want to foster in, in your employees a sort of, you know, real real belief in, in what you're doing and a sense of fun and camaraderie and, and all of that. But it, it can get out of control. And, and I think, you know, a lot of startup founders forget that their employees, they are looking for is sort of a mission and a, and a sense of kind of belief in, in what they're doing and, and a sense of fun and, and, and all, of the, all of that. But, but they will never, the company will never sort of be wrapped up in their lives kind of as much as it will be for a founder. And, and that's just sort of the, the, the reality um, of this. And, and I think with WeWork, it, it got to a point where, you know, you can have a cult of, of 10 employees and maybe 50, but once you have 10,000, that, that doesn't work as more. It doesn't hold the center of, of a company anymore. And, and what holds the center is paying people well, making it a, a good job and a good place to work and, and allowing them to build a life. And WeWork was predicated on that. I mean, that's what they talked about was building, you know, you, you know, building your life's work, basically. And ultimately, what, what a lot of employees found was that, was that they were building Adam Newman's life you know, they were building it for him. They were building his empire. And, and, and at a certain point they began to realize like, this isn't, this isn't for me as much as I, I want it to be. And, and so I think there's, there's both ways in which kind of pushing that is, is a good thing um, and can help a company grow, but it can also be, be kind of dangerous. I think you brought it out really well in your book that the fact that there was so much grunt work involved and very few people realized this in these ambitious plans and, and also in the execution of opening up so many locations so quickly. And it was really grueling and hard construction. The wealth accumulation was really centered at the top, very top heavy, heavy organization, I would say. But let's talk a little bit about the, the VCs that enabled a lot of this. And it's quite interesting to see that WeWork had a similar funding journey as, as Uber with Benchmark leading the Series A and then very quickly crossover rounds, JP Morgan leading the B and then it was Fidelity that led the E and then obviously Masa came in with SoftBank. And it's a typical pattern that we see. You have a strong signal investor at the A and then you have the growth capital piling in in the later rounds trying to preempt the next round. But let's talk about Benchmark and, and the role there. And, and I'm a big fan of Bill Gurley. I know you brought it out well in the book that he was quite suspicious of of the fast funding trajectory. One quote of him is, is saying that you have to play the game on the field. So basically you can't disregard these signals in the private markets. And I mean, his fund and firm has done financially well. I think they've realized a good DPI on that transaction, good realized multiple. Uh, if they look back, I heard 
a partner from NEA talking about this yesterday, actually, about Bill Gurley, because he's he's benefiting as a seed and, and Series A fund, obviously, from from this dynamic. They were they were the first institutional investor to, to get involved, the first big investor to get involved, rather. The money was, was important, but so was the brand, and so was the name benchmark uh, attached to WeWork. And and intentionally or not, the narrative of WeWork as a tech company was fueled early on by Benchmark's involvement. You know, the, a, a lot of the other funds that became involved later were more traditional investors, you know, investors that invest in all kinds of things. Um, Benchmark was was the one that, that, that that's what they do and that's what they're known for. And that's what Bill Gurley is known for. And a, a few things. I do think Benchmark certainly made efforts to to try to to push WeWork in a, in a more sensible direction, especially later on. And as SoftBank sort of came into the picture and, and pushed the company in, in different directions. But um, they also... F- fed this growth. They they invested at, at every round along the way. They knew Adam was was kind of a crazy guy and nothing in my book was a surprise to them. They sort of enabled it and encouraged it. If not encouraged it, then allowed it to happen because the valuation kept going up. And and even if it didn't totally make sense to them, then then they were um, they were kind of willing to to do it. And that you get to a breaking point at some point, which they of course did with Uber and eventually did with WeWork and and, and with Adam. But you know there there's collateral damage along the way. And as much as these sort of VC firms can can present themselves as the adults in the room, it's still pretty rare for them to to really put their foot down and make a company sort of act in in a, in a way they think is more sensible. And they did that eventually here, but there there were points along the way where they could have done more had they wanted to. It's really interesting because on the one hand, they, they might have from a personal perspective, the incentive to say, well, better grow slow and grow real. But then they see all this dumb money moving in, and obviously they like the markups in the fund. They like the sure. they like realizations. They like secondaries, and the LPs like markups in their funds. So, so it's definitely um, a slippery slope for them. Let's move on to to another really important stage of the company, which was the Series C, which was led by J.P. Morgan. You outlined this really well in the book: the relation with Jamie Dimon. And, and Adam Newman, another father figure to Adam Newman before Massa moved in. Talk to us a little bit about this relationship, at least how you perceived it from the outside between the two men. Yeah, I think for both Jamie Dimon and for others at J.P. Morgan, uh, you know, Adam looked up to them, and 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 he, you know, Adam, he was never setting out to become a tech founder, or Benchmark was not really something that he he cared about, you know, or, or even knew that much about before they came in. It eventually, sort of. He, he embraced that role because that was the role you embraced if you were an entrepreneur. But but Adam was just a businessman. He liked making deals. And that's what he did from, from the get-go at, at WeWork. And so I think that in, in that way, he was always kind of tuned to and interested in the, the world of banking, the world of finance, where deal-making is 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 core to, to what happens. And and so this was a sort of crucial moment. It was a different kind of stamp of approval than, than benchmarks. It was, uh, you know, that was Silicon Valley. This is kind of old Wall Street money believing in this as well. And I think that that both of those sort of combined were were crucial to the company's growth. I think Benchmark really helped the company to be cemented as a tech company. When I met Adam Newman at TechCrunch Disrupt in New York, he never felt techie. It wasn't really it wasn't what he was he was breathing, what he was, you know, fantasizing about. He wanted to be a businessman. He wanted to be accepted and respected within Manhattan. And that stamp of approval was really what what Jamie Dimon could provide with JP Morgan, I think. And then let's move on to the next round, the turnaround point in the in this story when 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 this reality dilution field that Adam Newman has built gets really 
legitimized in a sense with with these absolutely outrageous valuations when Massa moves in with his, his $100 billion vision fund. Adam has been preparing for this for weeks. And he's pacing around, pacing around, watching his clock. 15 minutes goes by, no Massa. Half an hour goes by, no Massa. A full hour goes by, and he's still looking at his clock. Finally, Massa shows up, and he says, Adam, I'm so sorry, I'm late, but we only have 12 minutes. And they're going through WeWork, and he's giving him the super speed tour. At exactly 12 minutes, Massa's son looks at his watch, and he says, Adam, I'm so sorry, but I have to go. But Massa said, if you'd like, you can ride with me to my next meeting. So Adam grabs his iPad with the whole WeWork SoftBank pitch, and they jump in the car. Adam pulls up his WeWork pitch, and Massa says, I don't need the pitch deck, let's just talk. Masa turns to Adam and he says, Adam, let me ask you a question. In a fight, who wins, the smart guy or the crazy guy? And Adam says, the crazy guy. And he goes, you're right, but you're not crazy enough. You gotta be the crazy one. You need to think bigger. You need to think 10 times bigger. And Masa begins you know, doodling his vision for WeWork, this grand plan to take WeWork global. So basically, Masa's son gave Adam Newman a check for $4 billion and said, go crazy. And that changes everything. Maybe talk a little bit about what this entry of Masa meant. It changed everything. I mean, you know, uh, leading up to that moment, WeWork was running out of money. They didn't have places to turn for it. You know, the company was... If, if they got more money, it needed to be a large amount of money. The valuation was already pretty inflated. So there weren't places to go to, to continue funding the growth. And, and Adam was resistant to, to an IPO at that point. He did not think the company was ready. He wanted to keep growing. And that is not the mode that you're in when you, when you head towards an IPO. And so this, this moment of this meeting between Adam and, and Masa to people who see themselves as visionaries uh, doing things in ways that, that others are not and with, with bigger dreams and bigger visions than, than anyone else was perfectly incongruous match in that it sort of led the company down the path that I think sent it to the end, which is, which is that any ambition Adam had that, that he, had, he had managed to kind of rein in up to that point, um, he didn't need to rein in anymore. He had as much money as he wanted to do practically anything to expand uh, not only the office business, but to expand the other businesses that that he wanted to get into, just to start a gym, to open an ele elementary school, all of these things that kind of eventually sent the company away from what it, it was good at and and distracted the company, I think can be can be traced back to to this moment when suddenly Adam had all the money in the world and and there there really were no no limitations on on what he could do. Yeah, talk about these, these side businesses that he expanded into. It makes a bunch of acquisitions of other startups. We had this idea 
Why don't we just invest money in companies that make impact? All the employees will want to work for them. Everybody want to be part of it. And it's just going to work out in an amazing way. I mean, there was obviously the, the Wavepool company. And then there was the We School, which was run by Rebecca. We grow. We're going to educate your kids better. When my eldest daughter was in kindergarten, as we started to look around for schools in both New York and the West Coast, I wasn't finding a place that was going to nurture her, her spirit and her soul as much as her mind. And one that I I've personally feel quite sad about was Meetups. I think it was a great company and he, he managed to acquire them because he just had the money, right? And he, he could use the position of, of these founders that they wanted to, to move on and build something new. Talk about these side businesses yeah. a little. Yeah, well, Meetup is an interesting one because, you know, it, it made a certain amount of sense. WeWork has all this space and, and people use it during the day, but they don't use it at night. Meetup is a, a kind of place where different organizations need space. So so you could make a certain, a certain argument for it, but it was also, you know, it was an acquisition meant to achieve a goal that was set out by Adam and Masa, which was to that WeWork should have millions of members. It should not just have hundreds of thousands as, as it had at the time. And to do that, you needed to find different ways to bring people in, into the WeWork network beyond just renting office space. And the idea was that, you know, you could sort of, if, if Meetup was part of it and you could sell kind of even just a membership to to be a part of the, the, the we community to, to have access to the space, to, to go to events and things like that, you might be able to find a way to increase membership beyond just people who, who paid rent. So, you know, that was one example. The, the school was another example. You know, I think the company thought, okay, we're good at, we're good at one figuring out and managing how to, how to use space in one way. So we could probably do it with a school. It's a totally different business, and and thinking about it as a business, frankly, is 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 a little problematic or, or can be. So you know, there were all these ways in which the company kind of tried to expand into these other areas that that were adjacent in in certain ways. The Wave Pool one was certainly farthest afield, but but in Adam's kind of grand vision, it was we're going to have these corporate campuses um, or, or these big retreat centers, and and they'll have a Wave Pool. So you can reach for it, but but ultimately, um, no matter kind of how far afield they were, they ultimately kind of distracted the company from the business of what it was good at. Yeah, and uh, I think it was all leading up to him really justifying these these frothy valuations. And now let's talk a little bit about valuations. And uh, I found this great chart that basically benchmarks the, the valuations. I think it was back in 2017. So 20 times revenue multiple versus Regis, which is this... UK competitor basically doing the same for two decades already. And that one is trading at one times top line. So these valuations really got got so frothy that that he needed to, in many ways, justify the valuation by by selling this tech story. We're as much a co-working space as Amazon is a book selling store. Anybody who thought that Amazon was there just to sell books just didn't understand the vision. It became more and more clear that he was developing his own language, his own terms as a way of, of doing that. And we first saw this with the, the bond offering where the community adjusted EBITDA made its first appearance, I think. Basically it was an attempt to say, we wanna to pretend to be profitable by ignoring these expenses. They adjusted for things that were ridiculous to strip out and say you're profitable. So suddenly they went from a loss-making company to a profitable company. At the S1 filing with the space as a service, it felt more like a, uh, a novel written by someone who was shrooming than an S1. An S1 is a form you have to fill out that's a precursor to going public. 
it's a first introduction to your company, to the world where you're representing that these are the facts. Talk a little bit about getting the company ready to IPO. You're not a financial analyst, I know, but I think you've, you've spent quite some time trying to understand these valuations. Yeah, and the company, you know, they, they, um, you know, a lot of people have asked, like, were, were these, were the numbers fake? Were, 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 you know, was there some kind of fraud? And, and as far as I can tell, that's, that's not the case. As the company moves toward an IPO, they, they try to do a couple of things. They tried to make the numbers look as good as they can, which is what any company does. And, and obviously, heading towards an IPO, you, you suddenly have to, you can't just use whatever metrics you want. There are specific ones you need to offer to kind of institutional investors who are not taking risks of the same kind that Bruce Dunleavy or Bill Gurley or or Jamie Dimon or, or anyone is. They're, they're, they're making uh, bets on behalf of pension funds and, and individual investors. They're just going to be more conservative. And so the, the company tried to kind of present its numbers in a certain way, but but when the numbers came out, they still just showed these enormous losses and and not a, a clear path to becoming profitable, to becoming a kind of stable company. And and I think, you know, there's there's a universe in which I think in, investors could have been willing to stomach that. I I, I I do I do believe, you know, because this was just a an era and a time where where growth was still king, and and WeWork was showing showing that. You might have been able to get investors to buy in, but when you had on top of that all of the kind of craziness, all of the stuff we've just talked about, about these other businesses, about the focus of, of Adam at the company, the ways in which he had profited individually, the way in which his his wife and his family members and his friends populated throughout this company, and and kind of some of the stranger ways that that he and other others talked about the company, elevating the world's consciousness was was ultimately the mission statement, which which was confusing to everyone. First red flag was on page one. It says we dedicate this to the energy of we greater than any one of us, but inside each of us. I mean, for God's sake, they're running fucking desks. And and so I think all of these things combined were kind of what what sort of led the company to you know the IPO just not going how how Adam or anyone else had planned and and there were so many question marks around his person eventually obviously there was the episode with him smoking weed on corporate chat mm -hmm. there were these buildings he owned and leased to the company there was the role of rebecca I cannot believe his wife is choosing his successor or so egregious that he would have his 20 to 1 voting shares or I can't believe the company is paying him $6 million for the trademark to the word we and the company name. He was buying buildings and then asking WeWork to lease those buildings from him. And then he took $700 million out of this company at the very time he was asking the public to put money in the company. But how do you think that, that his sort of public perception at the point of the S1 filing added to these concerns? I think it was huge. And, and I think, you know, one, one thing about this company, it was big, but most people didn't know about WeWork. Most people didn't know about Adam Newman. They were, the company had 400,000 customers. You know, Uber has tens of millions. Um, Google has a billion, you know, whatever the number is. So, so ultimately, sort of the public uh, was finding out about, about Adam Newman and the wave pool and, and the pot smoking and, and the way, the elevating the world's consciousness all at the same time, along with the, the fact that this company was burning money. And so I think it was just sort of, it was so egregious to everyone, even to people who had kind of been to a WeWork and they thought it was cool, and but they may not have known that it was supposed to, supposedly worth $47 billion or, or who the founder was and what he was like. So I do think that it, that a certain way, 
the press cycle around finding out who Adam was, finding out what this com- the story of this company was a hard thing for, for the company to overcome on top of the numbers, which, which didn't look great. So now let's fast forward. There was recently, as you mentioned at the top of the show, the halving of the settlement for Adam Newman. And yeah. we know that, that SoftBank has injected additional capital into the company to, to keep it afloat. Do you see any path to, towards profitability, towards an, an IPO personally? And how closely are you still following the company or been so deep in it that you're sort of tired and want to move on to the next story? There was, there was a moment after, after I finished writing the book where I needed a break from Adam Newman and, and WeWork certainly. But I find the company fascinating. I find him fascinating. I have been following the it closely and, and intend to. And I, I, you know, I think WeWork will be around. I, I, I have some skepticism about, about their ability to kind of live up to, to what they're, they're claiming still. And I think Adam will be around. I think he, he is not someone who's going to retire with his settlement, however large it is. He's going to take that money and he already is investing it in a, in a wide range of, of things. And, and I think he's someone who is trying to, going to try to be back in a big way. And I'll certainly be curious and, and eager to kind of find out and see how he tries to do that. I, I hope he, he got a, a signed copy of you. Uh, he hasn't asked for one yet, but uh, if if he did, I would I would absolutely. Wonderful, listen. I love it. I love it. So so Reeves, what's what's next for you? How can, how can people find out what you're up to next? How can they follow you and with your future journalistic work? Um, well, I, I hope everyone will subscribe to New York Magazine. That's that's my home base and and where I where this this book began and where you know if if there's another book in the future, it's it's probably going to begin with 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 something I, I work on here. Um, I just wrote a story about a, a venture capital funded uh, air purifier. So you know, I the startup world is one I I will continue to cover and. And um, you know, people can find me on on social media and all the usual ways under under my name. But um, but I hope they'll they'll continue to to keep reading, and I hope they'll anyone who hasn't picked up the book will will, will take Please. a look. It's it's really the book of 2020, and and I, I don't see oh, thank you. any book in in this year lining up to parallel this one. And yeah, <laughs> really looking forward to this air purifier story of yours, which sounds like a Juzero story. There's some elements of that. There's some elements of that. I I hope you do find some optimism in the startup world. There are really great, I think, jewels out there. I'm I'm optimistic about the tech and startup world, but I think we, we can all be thankful for this cautionary tale of yours. And with that, I would leave you to it. Thanks so much. 